Hello, welcome to the Co-Design in Publics podcast, a space where we bring together activists, practitioners, and academics to examine and discuss design ideas on the public realm. My name is Juan Subillaga. My name is Asin Inam. And we are your hosts for this episode. For the next few episodes, we will be sharing with you some of the conversations we had in our first Co-Design in Publics International Workshop. This workshop took place in May 2021 and brought together a series of network partners around the world to learn from the work they do in their cities. Today we will be talking to Lorna Fuller and Gabriel Klaassen from Project 90 by 2030, as well as Iska Dagrot from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. During the workshop, they told us about how they work on mobilizing and inspiring the South African society towards social and environmental justice. Our vision at Project 90 by 2030 is to inspire and mobilize South Africans towards a sustainably developed and equitable low carbon future. A little bit of context, I'm not too sure how familiar everybody is with Cape Town, but we're in South Africa, which is obviously at the bottom of Africa. And we've chosen to specifically focus on our area of Cape Town. That's a little bit about where it fits in. Um, but overall, South Africa, we have 58.8 million people. And we're 30 years into our democracy. We're still a very young democracy. We have 11 official languages. We must try having a really great session. Oops, sorry. In a, in a Zoom session when you need 11 people to uh, be, yeah. Uh, we have 43, it should be fun, hey, but it's not really. Um, we have a very high poverty rate and also 43% of our households are really energy poor. So they can't actually afford electricity many times. And we also have a very high unemployment rate in, in our youth under 24. This is a quick video this I wanted to share. in Cape Town, South Africa, divides the beachside community of Strand from the township of Nomzama. They're only a few meters apart, but the people on each side live very different lives. Strand has backyards and driveways. Namzamo is much more dense, and the people here have fewer basic services. Less piped water, less internet access, and Nanzamo is majority black, while the area across the line is majority white. If we use dots on a map to represent race, you can see how stark that divide is. If we zoom out to the whole city, we can see it's actually everywhere. And this is the case across much of South Africa. The color of your skin here often determines where you live. It also determines your quality of life. This map shows where jobs and opportunities are primarily concentrated in Cape Town. And this is where most of the city's Black people live, in informal settlements called townships on the city's periphery. People have to move by public transport for up to three hours a day, and they can't take care of the obligations in the community with the rest of the family because they're always working and they're always traveling. For decades, South Africa was under apartheid, a system that wrote segregation into law. A white minority controlled where non-white people could live work, exist. Many were forced out of their homes. In 1994, a democratically elected government took power and ended apartheid. 
it was supposed to be a new beginning. But a lot of the country still looks like this. And that's because South Africa's legacy of racial division goes back centuries. When we look at South Africa, we, we are really a very large carbon dioxide emitter. And, and that is because our electricity is really being generated from coal. And coal has its own issues as well, as you can well imagine, in terms of mining um, and pollutants. And linked to that, we have our public electricity supplier. Generator and supplier is ESCOM. Uh, and with our recent democracy came lots of corruption in our public services. So currently our energy provider is in a terrible state and owes a lot of money. And so there's constant investigations into where that money is going and why we're not being able to hold people accountable. And the air emissions, the air quality is one of those problems that we have as well. Project 90 by 2030, we started as a very small organization in the year 2007. And we wanted to inspire people to cut carbon by 90% by the year 2030. Some of our highlights on our journey are really around innovation. Um, in 2010, we created an online carbon calculator, which at the time was the first one in South Africa that was formulated for our South African people. Uh, in 2011, that was our first youth forum, and we managed to take a group of young people to COP17 to be part of the processes. And in 2014, we completed a number of demonstration sites, which I'll touch on again just now. And also we created a little thing called a light box, which will feature quite heavily in the presentation as we go along as well. And in 2016, we piloted a project called Playing with Solar with youth, where it's introducing them to solar and photovoltaics. And in 2019 was one of our better years. We had at least half of our young participants complete the President's Award. And we also had 12 partners that were activists in communities around Cape Town. In the second part of their presentation, Lorna told us a little bit about how they've worked developing community partnerships and demonstration sites for new technologies. So I'm bringing you back to the demonstration sites, which is quite a nice thing to highlight for Project 90. In the earlier years, renewable energy was a little bit unknown in South Africa. And so we chose to set up demonstration sites in areas where communities would meet and for small organizations that could use these to demonstrate how renewable energies work. In total, we set up 19 of these areas across four provinces in South Africa. And if you look at the little picture on the left-hand side at the bottom, that is a big biogas unit. It was a 6,000 liter tank that we put into the, the zoo where they could use animal feces to generate gas for the restaurant. Um, the next picture highlights a helicopter bringing a turbine for a water turbine that was put into um, a hydroelectric system in the, in the tile that was working in the monastery. Uh, the third picture is the aquarium. We had vertical wind turbines, but we also had other great inventions that happened with the aquarium, including a wave turbine uh, and some solar 
photovoltaic panels on their roof as well. And then the last picture is a very large solar array that we put up in quite a number of areas just to give people an experience of what it would like be like to, to not have to rely on the public energy supplier. Coming back to the light boxes, this was a project that Project 90 initiated with a private company. Uh, we developed these very small light boxes. It was a little 40 watt solar panel and a deep cycle battery. And it had three LED lights and cell phone chargers. And the most important thing about the light boxes were that they were easily assembled. So we would work with the community and we would teach four or five people how to maintain and build these light boxes. And they would enroll other community members to help them put together and install these in the houses. And then they could maintain them in the future because they were systems that they could open and the parts were all readily available at hardware stores and were really simple to, to fix or, or to add a few lights on. Unfortunately, they didn't do big things like fridges and TVs, but just providing the three lights and cell phone charging meant that these community members no longer had to travel long distances to do those small electrical charges. And this was really part of our community partnership work. You can see in the picture at the top, the woman is standing in front of her small solar panel, and she also has a 2,500 litre rain tank. Uh, these were rural areas. They didn't have access to electricity. And at one stage, there was very little water as well. It was just one large tank, and people had to walk quite long distances to collect water from the tank. But this partnership ensured that the community took action uh, we assisted them with finding the rain tanks. They did all the installations themselves. Um, we also helped them secure some rocket stoves and some wonder bags. And in the process, it was quite a confidence builder for them. They realized that they had a lot of the solutions. So we also ensured that they had some change agents that were trained in the renewable energy solutions going forward. They could look for them themselves and also know how to maintain them. We had a partner that did some agroecology training and we fenced off an area to create a big community garden and put in the solar water pump that irrigated the seven hectares. And this allowed the small cooperative to secure further funding to carry on with their, their planting of their vegetables. And ultimately they also had a community board representative for the area that was interacting directly in the spaces where their community needed their, their troubles to be heard. Finally, she explained Project 90 by 2030's work in more detail by talking about their unique three-pronged approach. This leads us to our three-pronged approach, which we feel is quite unique. We work in the area of policy and that's really a top-down work. And then we work with youth and community, which is more of a bottom-up aspect. So our policy team, they really engage in various levels and they make submissions on national climate and energy policies. And they also host a nationwide energy governance group. And their information is what we use to share with our youth and our communities. 
We also have five key principles to how we apply our work. We strongly believe that leadership is very important. Um, we do work a lot with young people to create leaders for tomorrow. Practical action is important. Um, just sharing simple ways of saving energy is very useful in a community when money is really short. Partnerships are so important because we wouldn't be able to do half the work we do without our partners and without partnering with people who want to go further. Research is our underpinning agent in making sure that we have our factual arguments and that we use those to inspire action. And then communication is just to share and to help people share their voices in specific platforms. So onto the policy program. Really our policy team are quite busy, especially in COVID. Government was trying to pull through lots of legislation without proper participation. And the team had to keep an eye out and see when we had to submit our comments on quite a few papers to make sure that we hold our local government and our national government accountable for the decisions that are made. Our recent research project, we, we did this in lockdown actually, and we interviewed decision makers specifically around energy policies. And it was surprising that we didn't hear this from our communities, but we heard from the, the local government that there's not enough public participation um, their voices are not being heard. So we would have expected that from a community level interaction, but for the actual government to be telling us that that's what the issue is as well, they've recognized that. And so this is something we really want to work on as we go further with our work into the future. This brings me to the youth activities. Uh, we work within a youth development framework and um, it's useful, as I said before, to have partners. We have partners with universities as well with private businesses. So at the universities, when we do our playing with solar, where the young people are learning a new skill, we use engineers without borders to assist us in that. We also do leadership hikes. We have partners that take our young people out onto the mountains, and that's to reconnect their love with nature, but also to build the leadership qualities that good leaders need to have. We do a service with greening of Kailicha, um, where we do food gardens in community areas. And then communications is a very important skill that we ensure we share with our young people as well, so that they can elevate their voices in the areas that they need to. The Playing with Solar project, uh, as I said earlier, is quite innovative. And you can see in the Top picture, that's a group of young people working on one light box. It's changed a bit. We actually now put it into a plastic box that you can buy at the hardware store. So nothing is really pre-made and everything can just be purchased. And these are the second part of our program. So once the young people have put together a small solar phone charger, as you can see on the right-hand side, some of our partners move on and, and do the slightly bigger project, and then they can install this in their house. And this is the three LED lights and the cell phone charger again. And um, it's a really useful learning skill because they go through the basic learning uh, electrical circuits, but then just putting it together gives them a sense of accomplishment. But it's a really nice project that they can share with other people as well. 
And then we also have to make sure that we're sharing the voices of the youth. So we've started to join in with our Fridays for Future campaigns and encourage our young people to share their voices. This is because South Africa has a history of youth-led protests and they usually bring about change. So we want to make sure we, we carry on with that. The exciting thing about our youth program and the lessons we've learned is that it's important to be in Kailicha. Um, this is our tiny little office in Kailicha and our team. They also all live in Kailicha, they're part of the community. And this is to make sure we have very tight connections to the schools, to the parents, and that our young participants can always feel quite at home coming to the office or meeting up with our staff in the community when they have problems. We also make sure that we use local suppliers for our services, whether it's food or transport as well. The COVID opportunities, sorry, the pictures are not great, but we had to resort to doing a lot of online protests, which are young people sending pictures of themselves with their little placards. And um, we also had time for the mentors to slow down a bit and to, to build their capacity. They all have their own computer and we made sure we had lots of data available for them. So they could, they could do some online training. But also you can see one of the mentors here was doing his growing at home. We did a little growing course through WhatsApp. All the information was shared on a WhatsApp platform. And they really then had to just grow at home and send us pictures to show us how they were doing. One thing that we forgot to mention, well, I forgot to mention a little bit earlier on was also just giving space to young people with regards to trauma, because there's always things happening in the community. So even though we have a very nice program worked out, sometimes we just need to take it slowly and give them a chance to just unwind and to speak to someone about what's happening at home as well. So we have partners who can assist us with social psych needs as well. So that brings us on to our last of our prongs, and that's our community program. In 2019, I said we had a very successful year where we engaged with community activists in Cape Town. They were really activists in areas around housing or other social issues. And we just then brought them into the program of energy and climate change and added on to what some of them already knew, but just highlighted the importance of things like resource mapping, mobilizing support, and we just came together in making submissions to engage with local government. So the regular learning sessions built up quite a strong network of these community activists together. In 2019, they all attended the public participation in regards to our integrated resource plan, which is a really important plan for South Africa in where we're going with our energy in the future. And it was really, Quite amazing to see them all making their submissions and speaking on behalf of their communities. The strengths are really the peer-to-peer -peer learning. The group comes together and often just has to hold time for trauma and to just debrief. Um, making submissions, they support each other. And then there's lots of fun as well. We, we like to make posters and to be outside parliament to get messages of sustainable energy out there. And an important thing that happened during COVID was 
how Cape Town came together. This is also this is actually called Cape Town Together, but we have a whole lot of community action networks. Um, and our partners in their areas were part of these networks where a, a suburb would partner up with more of a township area and they would help them secure any funds they would need to make sure that the communities were taken care of, whether it was food or gas for cooking or PPE for COVID. And it was really a, a highlight that came out of COVID that gave us all a lot of um, optimism. Oops, sorry, I missed one. Um, and this is just a story about Lydia. She's one of our community partners. She's from a women's circle in Mitchell's Plain where the women come together and talk about how they can um, make changes within their community. She joined our program in 2018 and since then has been leading discussions with other groups around energy. And her fight is really with our energy provider. Every time they call for an increase in tariffs, Lydia is the first person who wants to be in the public participation. She makes posters and she goes to the hearings. You can see in the bottom left-hand picture is a whole group of people that made submissions to the National Energy Regulator in South Africa when the, the tariffs were to be increased. And they rallied around and they presented their findings to the National Energy Regulator in terms of what the tariffs would mean to their community. She has been on TV and she's regularly going to platforms and speaking to people about how to save energy. And she's now recently also tackling the new nuclear bill that's potentially happening in South Africa as well. But what makes Lydia really amazing is that even though she's a community activist, she has found her niche at Project 90 and with the energy work. Um, she has a lot of time on her hands. She actually has been sent home because she's in palliative care. She has stage four cancer. And so she can't really hold on the job anymore, but she spends a lot of her time reading and just understanding what's happening in the electricity areas around the communities in Cape Town. And she's one of our really strong partners. So we really hope that we can tackle the, the new challenge of nuclear together. Our community partnerships for 2021 and onwards is including more youth. So we're building on what we have done, but we would like more youth voices. We would like more opportunities for them to be out and doing the hikes as well, as we do on our youth program. We're going to continue the practical actions, sharing those with communities. We're going to include more dialogues and more support because a lot of our participants come through our program, but they continue to do great work and would still need support in just getting to the platforms and being able to make sure their voices are heard. One of our stars is Ayaka Melitafa. She came through our program in 2019. She was one of the activists who together with Greta Thunberg and 14 other children put in a groundbreaking claim to the UN about countries not taking climate action. And from there, she just really grew. She went to Davos early in 2020. And now most recently she's been appointed as the youngest person of the 22 member presidential climate change commission. So we're very proud that she's there. And we are even prouder that our president has included the voices of the youth in the climate change area. 
So in conclusion, I would just like to say that we have strong roots in the Cape Flats. We're developing and supporting youth activists in climate change and energy engagement. We are recognized as a stakeholder in climate policy and energy decisions. And we have innovative and passionate team of partners. And this picture was from, it was essentially a youth climate change march, but I took this picture because they're not all youth. As you can see, the people in front are actually union members. Um, we have some of the worker forum people, we have Extinction Rebellion in the background, and the Women's Circle, Women on the left-hand side. So we really do enjoy partnerships and forging new collaborations together. Stay tuned. After the break, we will have a commentary and Q&A session on Project 90 by 2030's work, chaired by Dr. Charlotte Lemansky. going to share very briefly about my connection to P90, how that came about. And then I'm going to ask some questions for Lorna and Yiska and Gabriel to respond to that they, they know what the questions are. So it's not a <laughs> it's not a trick situation. But I thought it would be helpful to kind of start by talking about my relationship to P90. So I mean, as Lorna has presented, P90 works on climate change and energy governance, and, and they look at it from the perspective of policy, practice, and partnerships. And my research, uh, having worked in urban settlements in Cape Town for nearly 20 years, I came to them through the energy lens. Now, the connection is Yiska. Yiska de Groot, who's on this call, is a researcher at the University of Cape Town, who I'd worked with on a number of projects to do with access to energy in low-income settlements. And we had funding for a small project where a postdoc from Cambridge, not me, but somebody else that we employed, could go and spend some time in Cape Town. And that postdoc, Annika, spent time in the offices at P90. She worked from the offices and she interviewed people in the offices. But one of the main things that she did is she worked alongside the community partnerships that P90 did. And that's, that's what Lorna was talking about towards the end, which is this group of, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's between 15 and 20 community leaders. And by community leaders, what we mean is from low-income communities in those low-income areas of Cape Town that we saw on that box film, P90 gives them travel costs to come into the, to come into the city centre and they meet regularly. I think it's once a fortnight. Again, forgive me for the, any of the errors that I make. And they work with P90. And one of the main things that they're doing is they're building up capacity for those community leaders to have the skills to be able to champion the government, to be able to champion their rights and their needs to government. And that's that's part of what kind of piques my interest in the amazing work that P90 is doing in connecting communities to the state. In, in rather than being an NGO, and they do do this as well, that kind of bridges the gap and goes and advocates for people with government and with policy. So what really impressed me with P90 was rather than kind of listening to community voices and then going to the state themselves to champion policy, which they do do as well, was about skilling up 
existing community leaders who already live in communities are already recognized as leaders in those communities, skilling those people up to be able to take their needs and their voices to the state, training, training them in what are the channels that we can do this, but also bringing them together so they could meet each other. So that different community leaders from different low-income communities had a chance to come together and share their ideas and their experiences and learn together. Now, I know during COVID that's been a bit more challenging, but that the programme has continued. So that was my kind of initial introduction um, and connection with P90. Um, I hope that kind of situates it and, and kind of connects it to this project on the public, on who are the public, um, what is P90's role in kind of bringing the public, raising the profile of the public, working with the public to try and champion those rights vis-a-vis -vis the state. Right, I'm going to get to my questions now. I'm not going to waffle on forever because I think this will be more interesting as a dialogue. So one of the things that I thought would be really interesting to ask Lorna or Yiska or Gabrielle to comment on is the notion of who is the public in South Africa? Now, we watched that really powerful Vox film that we just show a clip from it. But what it made, what it demonstrated very clearly is that in South Africa, there's still significant racial and spatial uh, separation and that the, the, the colour of your skin plays a big role in where you live, what access you have to services and your quality of life. If we're talking in this project about the public realm, who are the public? Because it strikes me that in South Africa, there's multiple publics. And I think this probably resonates for other projects on this call as well. So Lorna or Yiska or Gabriel, anyone's willing, how do you conceive the public identity in a country so diverse and unequal where there are multiple publics? In South Africa, uh, it's quite different from many other places, but similar to many other places as well, where uh, instead of it being a, a situation of class difference, it's a racial divide and a, a race difference. It's 90% of, oh, sorry, 80% of the population in South Africa is uh, are black people, and uh, th there's uh, about 12% of people of color, 8% um, of which that 12% lies are or colored people who are a kind of, I'm a colored person. So yeah, I kind of live in one of the communities uh, as Lona mentioned, the Cape Flats. Uh, I actually live in, I lived originally in the same community that Lydia lived in, uh, Mitchell's Plain, and then moved to Hanover Park and other different places. Can, I, quite just to give, can I just give of some background? Sorry, Gabriel. So for, for those obviously that don't know Cape Town, the, the Cape Flats, is effectively synonymous. It's an area that is very flat. It's very prone to flooding. Uh, it's also an area that during apartheid, colored people were moved to. In the contemporary era, it's an area that's known for gangsterism, for crime, for violence, and for, and for desperate poverty. Sorry, carry on. I just thought that, you know, for people on Thank the call that don't know Cape Town. Definitely. Thank you for that. Um, but yeah, uh, like I said, uh, racial divide is a massive aspect in our different communities and our populations. Even though, we officially are out of apartheid. Everyone knows that once you're out of something, the effects are lost. You know, that's kind of where we still stand as, even though we're out of it, the effects are still there. We are still on the Cape Flats. We are still living uh, in under-resourced areas and underrepresented areas of our state. Um, and that a massive aspect is that, as, as that Vox video showed, 8% of our, our country is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 8% of our country is white, but they've got the majority of the land and majority of the, the, the wealth. And that's where the divide stands in. Um, and so a lot of what uh, kind of just to explain and wrap up in like three small points, 
um, is that rather than it just being a space where there's a division of class, uh, as many places have, uh, the division that we face in South Africa, uh, unfortunately, is still one that is uh, strongly influenced by the color of your skin based on the repercussions that we are still facing from apartheid. Thanks, Gabrielle. That's that's really, really helpful. Maybe, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll ask Yiska if she's willing to come in. Do you think it's possible in South Africa to talk about the public realm? Or do we need to pluralize it and talk about the publics? Well, I would... I would very much like it if we would be able to to speak about that. But for, for me coming in as an as I guess an outsider who's only had the, the luck to live in this country for six years, I, th I think it's going to be extremely different. Just just looking, for example, at the, the place where I live, I'm sort of wedged in between. So I'm I'm in a relatively new affluent neighborhood, which is supposed to be mixed race, but it's largely still white people which is where where the well sits to my left is a is a collar township called ocean view and uh, down the hill to my right is a, is a black township called Pugmasi Pumalele. and it's like it's it's pretty much three different worlds so i think in in practice we are going to have to talk about different publics but i think maybe one well, the end goal that, that sounds very idealistic but that we need to start working towards towards something where there's a lot more crossover and and we're not going to achieve it in my lifetime i think but we can get a long way i think that's really helpful and i think it's something that hopefully we'll come back to with the other presentations as well this idea of pluralizing publics of thinking about not the public realm but the publics and that there are multiple conflicting contrasting different public identities and public realms and public spaces that exist in, in all of the cities that I think we're going to talk about today. Um, Lorna, I, want, I wanted to, to focus the next question with you, which is if we recognise that there are different publics in South Africa, we've talked about race, certainly in Cape Town is the coloured community, African community, white community, and, and although for those that aren't used to South Africa, those terms might seem very stark, they are the terms that are in not just public discourse, but official data in South Africa. How do you connect the different publics with your work? How do you, you know, what work have you done that tries to connect wealthier, whiter communities with low income? You talked a little bit at the end about the CANS, the Community Action Networks. Could you reflect a bit on that, on P90's role in trying to connect different publics? Oh, I think initially we wanted to work with middle-class white people because we felt they were the biggest contributors to climate change. Um, so we were initially focusing on in the upper class schools and and our social media was looking at at white people specifically but recently we actually feel the importance is that our work is needed in areas where voices are are not heard uh, unrepresented unrecognized uh, voices and so our work at the moment focuses specifically on youth in, in Kailija which is a, a black township and uh, a lot of our community activists are either from, from there or from the Cape Flats as well. I guess our focus is, is that area of people, but um, we still engage through the research with other publics as such, so more of the white researchers. Um, it seems that the energy and climate change research realm in South Africa is still very dominated by white and mostly white males. So we, we have a, a foot in that school as well. 
does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think it also shows about your historical trajectory from from kind of working majority with middle class white groups to actually now I think you'd probably say the working majority with lower income black communities and, and black groups. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, and I feel like if we want change, we have to work with with the majority. Um, yep. White people so, are very complex. So just to build on that, what? So I mean, I, I spoke about that. My kind of route into P ninety was this community program you have, where you bring in community leaders from different settlements and work with them. And it's kind of effectively in in the language of this project, it's about mobilizing communities around shared concerns. That's exactly what you do with that project. What are some of the challenges of trying to support? low-income communities to champion their rights against the state to mobilize collectively? What are the challenges? I think it's unfair because they're trying to hold on a job and keep a family going and, and make money for electricity and they hustle. You know, a lot of our community leaders, if you can give them 10 rands worth of electricity, you have their attention for the day because they would be out hustling for 10 rands worth of electricity. I think that's a bit of an unfair thing for me that, that, that we're hoping that the change is going to come with them. But that they're, they're so stretched. Um, so the challenge is to keep their attention because they have responsibilities. Even now, when we want to, to do some work together, a lot of the community activists are still busy um, managing soup kitchens. So they don't physically cook the soup themselves, but, but one of our members has four kitchens and she's running around collecting donations and making sure everything's running smoothly. And, and so they're very busy people. So that, that is one challenge, is, is to get their attention. To bring um, your time to the table is one big thing because um, oftentimes people can't care about, for example, just on the topic of climate change or even just coming to a workshop about co-designing publics. If we had to do this in our communities, it might be very difficult because to sacrifice a day's labor is to sacrifice food. And so that is a big aspect of it is, is understanding that when we hold these workshops that we do with our community partnership um, or community leaders. The first kind of rule that we've all set is that it doesn't matter what it is in the morning when everyone gets there, we're going to have something to eat because we don't know who came from where and what. And then throughout the day, ensuring that we reimburse for traveling because we understand that it's a lot to take out of your own wallet to come and entertain our follies. <laughs> and so that's a massive aspect of it is, is understanding the reality and then acting accordingly. I think that that's a really important point that you raised there, Gabriel, about you know working with communities and, and, and taking an assumption that we know what's best for them, we know what's right, and, and that's hugely problematic. And I'm sure that's not the intention of any of us, but that's how things can come across. I think maybe I want to throw that back to you. You said bringing people together for our follies. You know, P90 works through the lens of climate change and energy poverty, primarily. Are they the most important lenses for mobilizing communities? Your, your point is valid in, in, in what you said, but I think one big part of P90 that I was really, because when they found me in a school, I was in an environmental club and I was plucked out and I, I soon joined as a volunteer and now I'm, I'm the communications uh, kind of officer. And so an angle that I think I really found that really made me cling to P90 was that it's not just environmental justice, it's social justice. And we focus on intersectionality of injustices. We understand that you can't, no one cares about climate change. No one cares about energy. You can walk, I can, for example, I've got a house. I'm, I'm in a house, I'm with my parents, I live here. But like, right across the road from me, there's someone who can't go like I can, even though I'm marginalized, I still have a privilege. 
I'm able to go and put the light on and put the light off. And I can then care about where my energy is coming from. But the person across the road from me who doesn't have a light switch, who doesn't work with electricity coming from the grid, they don't care where that electricity comes from as long as it switches on and off. And so that is kind of a massive aspect is we make sure that we are realistic in the way that we act and that with our follies, we ensure that it's not our follies in, in essence. We don't like, we can disappear. <laughs> the, the goal is that we don't work as an NGO, but rather that uh, when I say as an NGO, the stereotypical, we are to help you and then swoop out and then the community is left alone. I mean, in the sense of it's, it's more of an upskilling, it's more of a learning process. And so that the community is empowered and has built enough capacity to take on the issues themselves. So yeah, our follies would be uh, environmental side of things, but understanding that we've got to merge it with the social injustice side of things. Oh, that's great, Gabriel. And I'm really glad that you you felt confident to share you know, your journey with P90 as well, that you've come through as someone that P90 worked with and now you're working for P90. It's an, it's an amazing journey. So I'm really glad that you felt confident to share that and to be part of this workshop um, and to, to, <laughs> to adopt some of our follies <laughs> with co-designing public. So I think that's a great phrase um, that, that you've coined for us there. Um, I've kind of got one last question, one last point to wrap it up, and then I'm not sure, Asim Juan, if we open to questions. Um, but what I wanted to kind of end on was to ask both Yiska and Lorna to reflect a little bit more on how COVID has changed things. So, and that's a kind of a two-part question. Partly, how has COVID changed things for communities, for how communities can mobilize, for what the biggest concerns are in communities? And secondly, how has COVID changed things for P90 in terms of how you're able to work with communities? COVID was a good time for us to condense our operations. We actually moved to a smaller office because we realized we didn't need such a big space and we've cut our operational costs quite drastically. So as, as an organization during COVID, we had to dip into our, a little bit of our reserve fund. And that was to ensure that our previous participants or our participants of our program at the time could communicate with each other. We realized that being in hard lockdown, the scariest thing for them was not having um, information and not being able to communicate with their family or with their network because they had built quite a strong network. So we spent a crazy amount of money because that's a sad thing about South Africa is that cell phones and data, data costs are high, um, mobile phone costs are high. So we, we just wanted to make sure that everyone could call and speak to somebody else. And so that was the program. We would call one, each one call one was, was what our phrase was. And we did that with our youth as well. So the mentors would phone each one and ask them how they were just to make sure everybody had food um, and that everybody was okay. So out of our whole team of young people, we only found one family that, that didn't have food and we were able to, to respond and, and to, assist them immediately but also to point them in the direction uh, of soup kitchens and how to how to get help from there so so that was where we went as an organization but the biggest learning for me was one that um, we have these huge um, inequalities in in access to data to wi-fi and to the actual hardware as Gabriel mentioned to me as well not everybody has a smartphone and even if they do have a smartphone, the signal is really bad in those areas because it's not prioritized. 
and then if they do have signal, then the actual costs of the data and, this, and the phone calls is crazy. But what the positives that did come out of COVID for me was that our mentors had time to, I think I mentioned that, that, that we were able to give them each a, a PC and data and that they all used that time to go online and to learn and to be in webinars and to actually use that time as, as efficiently as they could. Um, and the other positive that came out was the actual networking. People just on, uh, found that they, they had such strong connections to each other, they shared resources. Um, some of our community activists uh, managed to secure food donations, but they would share it with their group, um, with all the other soup kitchens as well. They wouldn't just keep it for their area, they'd be sharing out whatever they could get. So a lot of, yeah, a lot of really good human soft stuff came through, through COVID as well as all the bad stuff but maybe Gabriel and Jessica could also add to that yeah I was going to ask it to maybe Jessica as well to, to or, and Gabriel to reflect on you know what's changed in communities so not just so much what P90 is doing um, but what have been some of the impacts on communities of the, the COVID not just from working with P90 but but also uh, with other communities is that the already poor are hit even harder so many people lost jobs. The, uh, the informal sector has been one of the, the saving graces of, of communities to really make sure that there is still bread on the table for, for quite a few uh, families. But that said, um, also for, for many communities, just like food parcels and, and soup kitchens have become uh, an essential thing um, as a result of COVID. And, and I, I guess like maybe, maybe the, the positive thing about is, is, is that maybe also partly by, by uh, middle class or people who are a little bit uh, better off, but also people like down in, in the trenches at communities, uh, people got together to, to try and provide support for, uh, for people that are less fortunate. And um, of course, that, that has been a struggle during like, the lockdowns and then restricted uh, access that, that people have to, to public spaces. But at the same time, I think it actually has helped to, um, to bring, yeah, the people of, of Cape Town definitely closer together. The South African government really didn't show up for the first few months. In the hard lockdown, we were told end of March, we're going to stage five and this is what it means. And you know, while everyone was stealing the toilet paper or buying toilet paper in mass, one thing that did prove kind of helpful, or, or at least not helpful, one thing that proved proved my suspicions that I've always known, um, and I mentioned it earlier, was that um, the community, you know, really relied on one another. Even though, and I've, I've said this before in that in the checkout or the check-in that we've had like weeks ago or a week ago, or so but I'll say it now for everyone else. But there was a big call for us to, uh, you know, socially distance ourselves, but we changed that kind of wording in South Africa. We kind of changed it to physical distance yourself, but social solidarity was a focus. And I think that's kind of a big thing is we've seen that the communities and the networks knew what to do and acted immediately, even though we had to <laughs> very difficultly socially, physically distance ourselves from everyone. But yeah, in the time that our government couldn't pull their socks up, um, our community was there to make sure that at least there were shoes. Thanks a lot. So um, I'm going to bring it to an end now. So thanks very much to Lorna and Gabriel and Yiska for the presentation, but also, you know, about the work of P90, but also kind of opening it up 
to reflect a little bit more on what it's like to be situated in Cape Town, what's happening in Cape Town on the ground historically and now as well. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when we release a new episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at CodesignPublix or Instagram at CodesigningPublix. This podcast is part of the Co-Designing Publics Research Network, a project funded by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council and hosted at Cardiff University. Thank you.